You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, a weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is Episode 6. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chris Lester, here to bring you more fiction fresh off my writing desk. It's been a busy week for me in my writing, as you'll hear about in this week's Weekly Writing Report. I've been working all this week on Flying Free, a story for the Elysian Springs anthology being edited by Lauren Scribe Harris. I'm excited to report that Lauren has given me permission to podcast this story for a limited time until the anthology is released. So once we're finished with To Walk in Shadow, that's what I'll be sharing next on this show. As you know, my goals are to spend six hours a week writing, and to write at least 300 words every day. This week, I'm happy to say that I exceeded both of those goals. At the time I'm putting this script together on Saturday, I've written for 10 hours this week, and written no less than 500 words on any single day. I wrote a total of 5,794 words this week, averaging 579 words per hour. Now, that's a lot slower than in previous weeks, but there's a good reason for that. Flying Free is a story about retired superheroes, and much of the story takes place in flashbacks to the 1950s and 1960s. I had to do a lot of research to get things right, as I wove my fictional characters into the tapestry of real-world people and events. I'm very excited with how the story is shaping up, but it does take some extra time to put this sort of thing together. I think you guys will be pleased with the results, though. Now then, let's get to this week's story. This week I'm bringing you the second half of Part 3 of To Walk in Shadow. As you'll recall, Lightbringer agent Clyde Jessup has been traveling through Prince Ball's domain on the Plain of Shadow, as Ball tries to find a path that will take them from Metamore City to the remote mountain nation of Estorini. They are accompanied by Xiong Jin, a master shadow mage and one of Ball's most trusted servants, six warriors from one of Ball's fortresses, and Terra, a human woman whom Ball says he needs to help him build the path to Estorini. Jessup revealed to Terra the reason for their mission. Estorini is in the grip of a deadly plague, and if they don't receive medical assistance from the Empire, all of Estorini's one million citizens are likely to die. Now that she knows what is at stake, Terra is even more committed to making sure that their mission succeeds. When we last left them, the company had just passed through the wall surrounding Ball's domain, crossing into the wild regions of Deep Shadow. The land beyond Ball's Wall did not resemble a desert. It looked like something out of a fever dream. The ground slowly twisted and churned under Jessup's feet. Further off, he could see the earth shifting in larger ways, constantly reshaping itself into dips and rises, hillocks and gullies. Dark, skeletal forms rose out of the ground and spread twisted branches overhead, a madman's impression of trees. Smaller forms surrounded the shadow trees, like shrubs and bushes, black, tentacled and writhing, more like sea anemones than plants. One of these shadow plants caressed Jessup's leg, which immediately felt cold where the tendrils had touched it. Jessup backed away in alarm, putting a hand to his sidearm. The plant thing opened red and black eyes and stared at him through star-shaped pupils. 
Everything Jessup could see had a vague, translucent quality to it, and when he looked closely at the outlines of the plants and landforms, they seemed to turn wispy and blurry at the edges, as if moving in and out of focus. Shadow, Jessup realized. They're all made of shadow. But the touch of that tentacle had felt real enough. He looked over at Ball, whose attention was elsewhere. The devil stood in the middle of a small clearing, and at his feet the ground was at rest. He sent tendrils of his own dark essence out into the mad forest, probing this way and that with long lances of shadowy power. The shadow-spawn plants melted away before him, evaporating into black mist that swirled up into the oppressive gray nothingness overhead. As soon as Baal withdrew his essence, however, new forms began to sprout and grow where the old ones had been swept away. Terra emerged from the wall then, and Jessup heard her gasp as she saw what waited for them. He turned and saw the emotions flickering over her face. Shock, confusion, revulsion, dread. She came quickly to Jessup's side and touched a hand to his arm, as if needing to reassure herself that something in this place was real and normal. My gods, she breathed. What in... gods? I'm right there with you, Jessup murmured. The soldiers came through next, and quickly spread themselves in a ring around Jessup and Terra. They brandished their long spears at the shadow spawn, and the blades glowed with cerulean light. They slashed at the shadow plants, clearing a space around themselves in their charges. The forms began to sprout again almost immediately, but as soon as one had grown a decimeter or so, one of the guards would snick it off again. At last, Siong emerged head immediately turning this way and that, looking for signs of danger. She held her dagger in one hand and her sword in the other. If the nightmare forest disturbed her at all, she gave no sign of it. She came up alongside Baal, nodded to him, and took up the lookout position, while Baal turned his attention back to the wall. The shadow prince placed his fingertip to the stone and began tracing symbols on it. The sigils appeared in lines of glowing blue-white as he drew them, and they hung there, shimmering slightly. Ball filled the space three meters across with the intricate designs, while the forest of shadow forms churned and shifted around them. When he had finished, Ball stepped back and looked at what he had drawn. After a single nod of satisfaction, he stretched out both hands toward the wall. The essence poured out of him once more, but this time it was absorbed into the wall. The sigils flared to blinding intensity, then vanished with a sound like a thunderclap. The buzzing sensation in Jessup's head returned, stronger than ever. The gap is sealed, Baal said. We cannot return the way we came. We press forward now, to victory. To victory, the others echoed, all except Jessup, who looked down at his boots and tried not to feel too awkward about being surrounded by Baalite cultists. If walking through Ball's portion of shadow was an exercise in loneliness and desolation, traveling through its wild spaces was a recipe for rampant paranoia. The ground could fall away between footsteps, sending Jessup and the other mortals tumbling into gullies and sinkholes, or it could thrust up ahead of them, tripping them face first. Shadow plants reached out to grab at arms, ankles, and necks. Some things that at first appeared to be plants would abruptly climb out of the ground and come running after them, previously unseen jaws stretching wide to snap at them. The soldiers held their own, 
holding off attacking shadow beasts with enchanted bullets and their heavy boar spears. Ball, intent on scouting the path and keeping the ground at least halfway steady below them, often did not even seem to notice these ambushes. It was Xiong who truly shone in this place, dancing around the rebel shadow spawn with the grace of an acrobat, weaving spells that confounded, dazzled, and dispersed the enemy creatures faster than Jessup could even follow what was happening. When they ran into something that Xiong could not scare off or destroy, she would pin it down with her binding spells, and Jessup would banish it with a blast of Lightbringer proxy magic. Both of them avoided using their pistols. They would need the ammunition later to defend the mountaintop. Terra, the only non-combatant in the team, kept to the center of the group and tried to stay out of the way. "'What do they want?' Jessup asked, when another wave of monsters had been defeated. Xiong turned to look at him, surprised. It was the first time they had spoken of anything but battlefield tactics in at least two hours. "'What do you mean, Agent?' "'You said the Shadowspawn were born out of hunger for something,' Jessup said. "'Like the Forlorn, who were made from hunger for compassion.' What hunger are these shadow spawn made from? Ah. Xiong gestured at their surroundings. The shadow forest of earlier had given way to a shadow grassland, with waving black tendrils of grass that stood nearly over their heads on either side of the path. The things we have seen on this side of the wall, what do they look like to you? Jessup shrugged. Nature. Plants and animals of all kinds. But... wrong. Yes. Xiong said. The beings you find in the penumbra are reflections of temporary mortal conditions. Hunger. Suffering. Loss. Here in Deep Shadow you find reflections of the living world itself. Right, I got that, Jessup said. But why? Is there some suffering that these things were created from? I suppose there is, in a sense, Xiong said. It is the suffering of shadow itself. Her aquamarine eyes looked grim and hard as they scanned the tall grass for threats. You asked before if Shadow was a place or a being. It is both. It is aware of the living world, and our presence causes it unbearable pain and rage. Jessup felt a cold sensation that had nothing to do with the temperature. But why? he asked again. We barely even know Shadow is there most of the time. What makes us so terrible? It was Ball who answered him. The universe as you know it did not always exist, human. It was born into a primordial void, formed from what your universalists call the Newman, the rawest essence of creation. But the void persisted, a primal force of destruction, as powerful as the Newman and its diametric opposite. The ancient elves called it the Underworld, but it is much more than that. It is the antithesis of all existence. Ball turned around and looked at him then, and spread his hands out before him. An illusion appeared between his open palms. On one side, a brilliant light, and on the other, a well of absolute darkness. Suspended between them, Jessup saw the earth, and beyond it the sun, other stars, entire galaxies, a realm of infinite space bent into an area the size of a tennis ball. Jessup could see both the light and the darkness reaching out toward that ball of space, pouring in energy on one side and tearing it away on the other. 
When either the Newman or the Void touches the mortal world directly, the effects are disastrous, Ball said. Ten thousand years ago, a tiny hole to the Void was torn open by elvish magic. It drained life and mana out of the world for millennia and corrupted everything it touched, until at last the hole was sealed. The present resurgence of magic is a direct result of that healing. Jessup nodded. That story, at least, was well known among the Lothanasi. But contact with the Newman is just as dangerous? I have reason to believe so, Baal said, though I have not witnessed it personally. But fortunately, the mortal world has buffer zones between itself and these two extremes. They do not prevent the influence of the Newman or the Void, but they slow them down. They force the great powers to work their will through lesser agents. Realization clicked into place. The Dreamlands, Jessup said. They sit between our world and the Newman. That's why new fairies can just pop up out of nowhere. They're made from the Newman. And inspired by creatures of the mortal world, yes, Baal said. When my race discovered the Dreamlands, we soon realized that they were a necessary layer of insulation between the raw creative essence and the mortal world. But I was the first to realize that there must be an opposite counterpart on the other side, shielding the mortal realm from the powers of the void. He showed his brilliant white teeth. And I found it. Jessup looked up again at the mockeries of living things that surrounded them. So this, all of this, is born from the forces of cosmic destruction. And those forces, Baal said, are very, very hungry. They long for the day when the mortal realm is swallowed up in eternal darkness. The shadow spawn are their means for achieving it. Baal's purpose in shadow is at last starting to become clear. You knew they were coming. Jessup said. You built the roads, the walls, the fortresses. You made half of deep shadow into an empty desert, all to hold them back, to keep the void from eating the universe. Yes, Baal said. His face was hard, his tone imperious. I was born to rule, Lightbringer. I will not cede my realm and my subjects to the outer darkness." Jessup had never heard that name for the Void before, but he immediately sensed its significance. On Ball's lips it carried an echo of malevolent power, one that sent a chill coursing through Jessup's veins. He suspected it was not a term to be used casually. "'If that's what's going on out here, why don't you tell Kaya and the others?' Jessup asked. "'Why not ask for their help?' Ball glared at Jessup and he immediately regretted asking the question. After a long moment, the devil answered, I do not seek favors, he said. I do not ask for help. I make bargains. The bargain I have made with the Majestrix will do much to increase our capacity in this fight. If this later proves insufficient, then I will pursue other options. But I do not need a dozen squabbling deities arguing with each other over the best way to meddle in my domain. Jessup bowed his head. Of course, Lord. I'm sorry if I caused offense. Ball made an irritated grunt. He turned to the rest of the group. We are behind schedule. 
The rebels have lengthened the path ahead of us. Move faster. He set off down the road at a brisker pace, and the others fell into step behind him. Xiang and Tara both came up alongside Jessup, their eyes wide. Holy shit, Tara murmured. What? Jessup asked. He never talks like that with outsiders, Tara said. He barely talks like that with us. Indeed, Xiang said. She looked after Ball, then back at Jessup. You do not understand the boon you have just been granted, Lightbringer. Jessup thought back to Kaya's conference, where Ball had patronized the freaking Vampire Queen for daring to ask what he was up to in shadow. I think maybe I do, he said slowly. What I don't understand is why he chose to tell me. I'm nobody. No, Tara said, as if she had just put something together. It's because you're immortal. Think about it. If he tells the other gods about the threat of the void, what do you think they're going to tell ordinary people like us? Nothing, Jessup said, emphatically. At best, Xiong said. At worst, they would lie and seek to suppress others who spoke the truth. Right, Tara said. But if he tells you, you're the impartial voice for the little guys. You get to decide who you're going to tell and what you're going to say to them. Remember, the master is old. He doesn't always understand how mortals react to things. He's trusting your judgment for how and when to let this out. Jessup felt a little queasy at the idea. That's, um, a lot of responsibility, he said. Knowledge often is, Xiong said. Tara took his hand and squeezed it. Look at it this way. Now you understand how important our mission is. You know what's really at stake. If we take this mountain, it doesn't just help the Astari. It pushes back the void, just a little further. It makes it a little harder for the Shadowspawn to get into the real world. It won't last forever, but it buys time. For you and for everyone you care about. Jessup paused, his steps faltering for a moment. There had been something in Terra's voice just then, a quaver he hadn't heard before. He looked searchingly at her. Hey, are you all right? Tara smiled, but her eyes glistened with moisture. Sorry. I'm just... I was thinking about my family for a minute. You know, that whole everyone-you-care-about thing? It's been a long time since I've seen them. She shook her head. We didn't really part on the best of terms. Mom and Dad didn't approve of your new religion, Jessup guessed. Tara laughed bitterly. <laughs> you could say that, though my sister was even worse. I'll spare you the details. She sighed. You make your choices, you pay the price. But I'd forgotten how long it's been since I've seen them. I wish I could tell them what we're doing here, why it's important. Jessup squeezed her hand back. Well, you never know. You might get the chance someday. Tara broke hands with him and put an arm around him in a sideways hug leaning her head against his shoulder as they walked. Thanks, Clyde, she said, but I'm not going to hold my breath. They continued on at the new, faster pace, as much as conditions allowed. The attacks came more frequently, and with more and larger shadow beasts in each wave. Apart from being made of translucent black shadow stuff, there was no unifying trait the creatures shared in common. 
Some looked insectoid, some like mammals or reptiles or birds, some like squid or octopi. Many of the creatures seemed to be assembled from mismatched parts, with too many eyes, claws, and mouths in the wrong places. Their tactics were growing more diverse as well. While some continued to rush straight on at Ball and his company, others attacked from underground or swooped past in aerial hit-and-run raids. Two of Ball's soldiers were injured in one particularly nasty attack, when a frontal assault came in the midst of the swirling gray fog bank that lay at the base of the mountain. Pinned against the mountain on one side, the soldiers fell back and ran straight into a pit trap. The thing that ambushed them there looked like an enormous antlion, and it left their legs and torsos mangled and bloody before Baal put it down with a lance of black energy that separated the head from its body. Baal looked down at his soldiers, carefully assessing their condition. I can use the light healing on them, Lord, Jessup offered. Baal didn't look at him. Can you restore them to fighting condition, agent? Jessup considered. Honestly, probably not. I'm not that strong with the healing yet. But I could get them well enough to walk out of here. Save your strength, Baal said. There will be no walking out of here for any of you unless we take the mountain. He made eye contact with his men and gestured toward the rocky slopes above them. Find a defensible position and watch the path behind us. Hold off any rebels as long as you can. If you survive, I will return for you once I have anchored the road. The soldiers winced in pain, but they each saluted their lord with a fist over the chest. Yes, lord, they said in unison. Jessup looked apologetically at the men as he passed them, following Ball up a narrow track in the mountainside. The men waved him on, their eyes proud and defiant as they took up their watch. Ball now turned all his power toward keeping the path stable for the others. If the ground shifted or fell away here, it would mean certain death. The mortals climbed and clambered and occasionally crawled, inching their way toward the mountain summit. After a while, Jessup heard the sounds of combat further down the path, and while he could not see them, he knew that Ball's soldiers were holding off the shadow spawn. When the cries faded and guns and steel fell silent, Ball pointed to two more of the guards and gestured down the path. The two warriors fell back and found their own defensive positions, while Ball led the rest of the company onward. By the time they reached the summit, only Ball, Siang, Jessup, and Terra remained. A broad shelf stretched out before them, overlooking the churning, roiling fog of the wild reaches of shadow. Jessup reached down and felt the ground. It felt real, like solid rock, and the dirt clung to his fingers. The mortal world must be closer than it appeared. Siang wasted no time unpacking the tools and reagents that Ball would need for the incantation. She laid out everything swiftly and neatly, like a nurse assisting a surgeon, and Ball set to work building an arcane circle. Lightbringer, Terra, keep watch, Siang said. Let me know the instant you see enemy movement. Yes, my lady, Terra said. Together they moved to the edge of the rocky shelf, near the place where they had emerged from the path. They stood in silence, watching and listening. If the last two guards had been attacked, Jessup could hear no sign of it. After a while, Terra leaned close to Jessup's ear. Promise me something. What's that? Terra looked at him closely. 
Jessup looked back. Tara's blue eyes were wide with earnestness and suppressed fear. If... if we win, but I don't make it, tell my family what we did here. I know, she said, holding up a hand before he could protest. I know it's a secret mission. I don't care. Get permission if you have to, or do it behind your boss's back, but tell them. My parents, my sister, they never understood my choices. But if I go down saving a million people, I want them to know that. I want them to understand. Promise me, Clyde. Jessup saw the pain in Tara's eyes, and any thought of arguing died before it reached his lips. He took her hands in his and looked straight at her. I promise. How will I find them? My sister's in Metamore City. Her name's Joyce. Joyce Yanlin Douglas. My parents are Vincent and Janet Douglas. They're in Cardale. Jessup nodded. Okay. I'll remember. He squeezed both of her hands. But I'm going to do everything I can to get you out of here in one piece, Tara. No, she said sharply. You do everything you can to complete the mission. A million Astari are more important than me. They're more important than you, too. Jessup lowered his head, conceding the point. He remembered what Grandmother Marai had said to him. For the right mission, we're all expendable. Even me. A shout came up from the path below. Enemy incoming! A half-second later, Jessup could hear the snarls and bellows and hisses of Shadow Spawn, followed by the roar of the soldiers' assault rifles. Siang! Jessup shouted. Coming, Siang called back. Tara, the master needs you. Got it! Tara threw her arms around Jessup's neck and pulled him into a quick, fierce kiss. She pulled back and grinned at him. No regrets, Clyde. Then she ran toward Ball in his magic circle. Siang came up beside Jessup a few seconds later. What's he need Tara for? Jessup asked. She will help the master anchor the spell, Siang said quickly. Ask questions later. Have you seen them yet? Not yet, but it can't be long, Jessup said. The soldiers were out of view behind the last switchback in the path, but the sounds of battle were growing nearer. Siang took out her pistol, and Jessup did likewise. She gestured to him, and he moved to a spot about ten meters away along the top of the cliff, away from the path, but closer to the switchback where the attackers would emerge. Behind them, Ball and Terra began to chant, his low and sonorous voice in counterpoint to her bright soprano. Jessup could feel power beginning to well up from the stone beneath them, drawn up from the mana nexus in nearby Estorini. On the mountain slopes far below, Jessup could hear a thousand monsters cry out in rage and loathing. They know what Ball is trying to do, Jessup thought. The guards on the path below started screaming. One was cut off abruptly. The other's voice rose sharply in pitch. Jessup saw the man's assault rifle come flying up the path, accompanied by one of his arms. The rest of the man did not emerge from behind the rock, but a moment later his screams ceased as well, as a spray of blood spattered the dirt. A second after that, a nightmare came into view. It was the largest creature Jessup had seen in shadow so far, an oily black mass the size of a shipping truck. Hundreds of yellow and black eyes covered its irregular form, along with mouths large and small, encircled in white, hook-shaped teeth. 
Lumps like boils erupted everywhere on its glistening hide. Muscular tentacles writhed on all sides of the creature, small ones around the mouths, about the length of a man's forearm, while a nest of longer, thicker limbs supported the creature's massive bulk. The tentacles moved chaotically, snaking out in all directions, carrying the creature forward more through competition than cooperation. Several of the eyes turned to look up at Jessup, and the creature let out a high-pitched, chittering shriek. Terror gripped Jessup's heart. The sense of utter wrongness that surrounded the creature pushed out all rational thought. This was something more alien than any fairy, more alien than even the shadow spawn. This was an abomination, a creature of the endless void, a thing with no place in the world they knew. And it was coming for him. The gun fell from his nerveless fingers. He staggered back, tripped, and fell into the dirt. He scrambled to his feet, looking around wildly for some way of escape, but they were on top of a freaking mountain. There was nowhere to go but a cliff's edge and empty sky. Oh gods, oh gods, oh gods. Siang spat out something that sounded like a curse. Jessup felt something cold and dark wrap itself around his head, pushing its way into his ears and eyes. He thrashed and fought back, tried to resist whatever it was on pure instinct, but it forced its way through his defenses. His head was seized with a sudden, blinding, freezing pain. And then the pain faded, and he could think again. The terror that had seized him was gone as quickly as it had come. He looked up at Siang, who was just lowering her jeweled dagger. He nodded his thanks, retrieved his gun from the dirt, and ran back to the edge. The nightmare was still there, but Siang's counterspell held the terror at bay. Jessup took aim at the void spawn and began to fire, careful, deliberate shots at the eyes and mouths. The enchanted bullets sizzled and smoked where they struck, but the beast kept coming, slowly but inexorably, up the path. Siang added her own bullets in a crossfire, and the void spawn let out another chittering wail, but even that did little to slow it down. She tried one of her shadow bindings, but the beast tore through it like tissue paper. Jessup had an idea, but he had no clue whether he could pull it off. I'm not seeing any other options, though. He closed his eyes, centering himself, and reached for the power that had been invested within him. The Lightbringers had taught him to draw on that power sparingly, through carefully crafted proxy spells designed to produce measured, specific effects. In time, he would learn to channel more of that power, to release it in larger workings with broader effects, but such spells were dangerous and difficult for a novice to control. So Jessup didn't worry about trying to control it. Instead, he opened up that well of power, pointed it in the general direction of the void spawn, and released it. All of it. A torrent of white light erupted from Jessup's forehead, eyes, mouth, chest, and belly, and streaked toward the void spawn like water from a ruptured fire hydrant. A sound like a thunderclap split the air. The light struck the nightmare and pinned it against the rocks of the switchback. The gelatinous body writhed and twisted like a bug on a spit, its hide slowly changing from black to glowing red. The beast howled from every tortured mouth, a hundred screams of agony. Then the body erupted in flames, pouring acrid black smoke into the gray skies of shadow. The light stuttered, faded, then winked out altogether. 
Jessup turned, staggered, and fell in a boneless heap facing Ball's magic circle. He did not fall unconscious, but a prickling fire burned in all of his nerve endings, and his muscles refused to move. Lightbringer, you did it! Xiang said, kneeling at his side. She sounded... excited. The Void Beast is dead and the rebels are fleeing. You saved us! Ball and Terra's chanting rose to a crescendo. Smoky shadows and cerulean lights swirled around the circle as a rising wind whipped at their hair. Terra threw back her head and stretched out her arms in exultation, arcane power crackling like lightning across her skin. She looked glorious. "'The land awaits your rule, master,' Terra shouted, in a voice full of joy and triumph. "'Claim this place as your own!' "'By my name and by my power,' Ball bellowed. "'By the willing offering of my beloved servant, I do so claim it!' And then, as Jessup and Siang watched, Ball raised a black dagger and drew it across Terra's throat." And that concludes part three of To Walk in Shadow. Tune in next week for the fourth and final part of the story. Now, let's get to some feedback. Hey, Chris, it's Sarah Testarosa. I just had to call and leave a comment. When you were describing, you know, the place where they went to with all the different subsections, the different things like the hot tub and the pillows and the, like, the whole BDSM central thingy, I was just thinking, like, I want you go to there. I know, right? Never let it be said that the Church of Baal doesn't know how to throw a party. Except, you know, for the whole devil-worshipping thing. That would be kind of a turn-off for me. I really liked Young, because I I liked her in the other story as well, and just getting to know her a little bit more in that one as well, and just how smart she is and how kick-ass she is, basically. But I really liked it as how she just kind of turn Jessup's gases on his on on their head is just kind of like, okay, like this is this, 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 this is not her purpose. Like Jessup, you're not all that. That she's like trying to seduce you for some other weird purpose. No, she's tired and she needs like uh <laughs> the heat is good for sort of muscles. That's actually true. So don't flatter yourself. But I just love what she said, and it's like yeah, no. And I like how she kind of pretty much said how important she is. This is, was a great opportunity for her to state, like, her role, pointing out the fact that she's pretty darn important to be going on this mission as being Jessup's bodyguard. I just thought it was a cool way of conveying her role in um, the Land of Shadow and stuff. Anyway, uh, I'm going to keep listening and talk to her. Yeah, it occurred to me as I was writing this story that Jessup would be expecting someone to offer him sex. Because, hello, Prince Ball is the god of debauchery, and they're in his temple. But it also didn't make any sense for the characters for Seong to be the one to do it. It's just not what she's about. Besides, I really hate the whole stereotype of the pure-hearted soldier of good who's going along minding his own business when he's unwittingly seduced by the dark, sensual femme fatale. So I subverted that trope, but I didn't want to leave it there, because I felt like in some ways it would have validated Jessup's puritanical attitude. So then I had Jessup fall for the woman who seemed quote-unquote normal, because this is a place where the sexual mores are different, and a person like Tara wouldn't think twice about casual sex with someone she thought was cute. 
And of course, as soon as I brought Tara into the story, I understood what her role was going to be, and how Ball's roads were actually built, and the whole rest of the story unfolded itself for me. It was a wonderful example of a character that I brought in to address one problem turning out to be really useful in fixing another problem somewhere else in the story. This happens to me more often than I would like to admit, most significantly when I brought Miriam Bakhtivar into making the cut. Hey Chris, Sarah Testarossa here again. The latest installment of To Walk and Shadow, I actually listened to it today, it came out, I just forgot to call in. I definitely enjoyed it. I am definitely wondering how there's only a little bit left because it seems like it could go on and on and on, but I guess we'll see. I'm wondering why Tara was chosen to come along rather than someone else in Ball's court. I wonder if it's just because, you know, she had been just made or whether, and, you know, say it had sex and stuff, or if she had been chosen to be his maid because there's something about her that makes her particularly useful for this session. I also thought it was interesting how Ball was able to win her over. I think it really makes a lot of sense that she just needed to hear no bullshit from someone and, you know, who's saying about winning people over with the truth rather than lies, and lies being, like, harder to maintain and stuff. That's definitely the case. Another thing that I liked was Tara's explanation of what Ball and his people actually do when they're building the roads and stuff like that. I think it's interesting. I wonder if anyone in the uh, mortal world really recognizes what's going on and Ball and his people are actually helping them because, you know, he's not really super duper welcome among the fallen gods and such. I mean, he's treated as a, you know, special guest, but I I feel like they know what he does. But I find it interesting that the rest of the mortal world doesn't, and I'm wondering why if it's because if the information is being kept secret because they don't want more people to join him or what. It's just kind of interesting. Well, as you heard in this episode, there's a lot that even the other gods don't understand about what Ball is doing in Shadow. And here he explained some of his reasoning for keeping them away. Certainly the mortal world has even less idea of what's going on in Shadow than the gods do. Though, now that Ball has shown some of it to Agent Jessup, maybe that will start to change. Ball's decision to involve Jessup may indicate a belief that the situation is changing, perhaps for some of the same reasons that Lord Klepnos was worried at the end of Make-Believe, and Mirai was worried at the end of A Lightbringer Carol. Big events are in motion, and even though none of the gods understand completely what's happening, they can sense that the status quo isn't going to remain intact for much longer. It will be interesting to see what happens now that someone outside the Church of Ball has this new information about what's going on. As for the reasons why Terra was brought along, the biggest reason should now be obvious. As for why her and not someone else, that's something Jessup's going to want answers to as well, and you'll see that in Part 4. And the last thing is actually going back to one of the earlier parts. I forget if I commented on the Forlorn, but I've been watching more horror movies lately, and yes, horror movies and novels are different, but the Forlorn definitely makes me think of horror movies, especially some of like the Japanese ones. I think someone called it Mystic Horror, but I don't know. It's just, the Forlorn is really creepy. And there's also something about things without faces that's creepy, like, you know, humanoid things without faces, so that was kind of like, ugh. Uh, <laughs> part of me now is thinking about, like, wondering what the story of someone who becomes a Forlorn is like. I mean, yeah, it can be really, I'm sure it's very tragic and such, but um, anyway, I don't know. I just thought that was cool to um think about after kind of starting to get more into the horror genre. 
but definitely I see how they have their place in shadow. Anyway, that's my rambling for me. I'm looking forward to the next episode. Bye. Thanks, Sarah. One of the interesting parts of developing this story for me was trying to think up new creatures to inhabit shadow, since it exists as this sort of buffer zone between the mortal world and what the characters call the underworld or the void. I decided that I wanted them to be sort of like undead, but not exactly the same, since I've already got something fairly well established going on with ghosts and shades and the like. The forlorn were one of the concepts I was most happy with in that little brainstorming session. When our characters pass back into the penumbra near Asterini, you'll get to see another kind of shadow spawn, which I think might be even creepier than the forlorn. And incidentally, I just want to say that the void spawn that showed up at the end of this part is another reference to one of the grand masters of speculative fiction. Bonus points to whoever can figure out who that is and what the creature was called in their stories. If you'd like to participate in the feedback conversation, you can record yourself on your smartphone or computer and send the file to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. And of course, you can send written feedback to that address as well. If you want to leave a voicemail, call the feedback line at area code 641-715-3900 and then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Twitter as Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S, on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on my blog at chrislester.org. Past episodes of Metamore City are at metamorecity.com. We also have discussion forums that I'm trying to get going again. Those are at metamorecity.freeforums.org. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for another update from The Writing Desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. This podcast and its contents are copyright 2015 by Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information on this license, please visit creativecommons.org.